All right. Thank you so much for joining us here on Labor Wave Revolution Radio. This is Andrea, and in the studio is also Person X, kind of off to the side. And we have here in the studio the creator of the podcast, Friendly Anarchism. Do you want to introduce yourself in your podcast a little bit? Sure. I'm Catherine. I'm a Quaker and an anarchist. And so I have this podcast where I have discussions with people in the community and other activists and other anarchists and other Quakers about sort of the intersections between spirituality and anarchism and then just other, just whatever topics I feel like are interesting. That's awesome. Um, I've been so excited to have you on. On our show, we talk a lot about working class, revolution, um, labor issues, anarchism, and the whole gamut of leftist organizing. So I think there's going to be a whole lot of fun stuff to talk about. Me too. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for coming. Um, So I want to start off uh, with, you know, your podcast talks a lot about anarchism. And I know there's a lot of misconceptions around what anarchism is and how it could be defined. So if you had to sum up what anarchism means to you, um, what does it look like? And how do we start to define anarchism and fascism in a way that's accessible to more people? Mm-hmm. That's something I've thought a lot about because my podcast is meant to be educational as well. So how I describe it in one of my first episodes, like one of the first interviews I did, was that there is a scale between anti-authoritarian and fully authoritarian but on the far left end, you've got anti-authoritarianism, which is full anarchism. And then on the full right, far right, you have full authoritarianism, which is fascism. So if you're talking about what the definition of full authoritarianism is, it's full hierarchies. It's having the power all at the top. It's having a completely unequal society that the powerful rest on or stomp down on all of the oppressed. And you have more and more oppressed classes and... Um, You have the decision-making structure is completely at the top, right? There's like one or a handful of people that make all of the decisions for everybody in that society. That's full authoritarianism. So then anarchism is the opposite of that. It's full equality. It's full distributed decision-making capabilities, which is we call direct democracy, wherein every person in society has an equal say in what happens in their lives. And it's all about equality of people. So all people have rights. Like all people, whatever, as of now, their oppressed class is. Um, and not, I don't just mean class. I mean sort of any intersectional identity mm-hmm. are equal to everybody else. And um, it's completely non-hierarchical. So instead of being hierarchical and the idea is that every person, individual, has power as opposed to having the structure itself having power. I know that for myself. Um, being in leftist and anarchist circles, I think where it starts to break down is we have all these hyphenated, super fun, super specific theories of anarchism. Um, It gets to be kind of like soda pop flavors, right? It's not just brown (laughs) cola, right? We have anarcho-feminism. We have anarcho-communism. There's, um, you know, some terrible fascists that appropriate the word anarchism for like anarcho-capitalism. And stuff like that. And then there's, um, yeah, there's all these different flavors. And so I would like to kind of focus in on a little bit of the Quaker tradition and friendly anarchism Mm -hmm. and what that kind of means as a flavor of uh, political theory. Well, it's so funny talking to people and more and more 
left like radical Quakers have been coming out of the woodwork because of my podcast and starting to call ourselves anarcho Quakers, <laughs> which is um, for me is a focus in on the mystic qualities of anarchism and anarchists in a context of a histor- a larger historical context going way back before the Enlightenment and looking at um, how societies that have been the most egalitarian have also been the most mystic. So there is a mystical... And so what mysticism... And I should probably define mysticism if I'm going to keep talking about it, right? If you like. So a mystic tradition is a tradition that's basically the same as an anarchist tradition, but on a spiritual sense. So like an anarchist tradition is that power is completely distributed between everybody and everyone has their own individual power and access to that power politically. And a mystic tradition is a spiritual tradition that says everybody has equal access to divinity, that you don't need a hierarchical system. You don't need to like have the power of the divine or of God come through a pope or a pastor. Some sort of channel, some sort of person who says, I have the word of God or I have the ability to correctly interpret the Bible. And so I will interpret it for you. Exactly. So like the idea of a mystic tradition is that that's not true. Everybody everybody has divinity within themselves, just like the way we believe we all have power within ourselves. So my focus is exploring how that spiritual mystic tradition over intersects with a political anarchist tradition. I think that the way Quakers organize can be a good model for those of us looking for organizational models and inspiration on the left and in the labor movement and, and, anarchist and communist movements Mm -hmm. yeah i think um a lot of how anarchists now do consensus organizing and do a lot of that kind of organizing comes from the quaker tradition of how they ran their little societies way back in the day through consensus because it it rises it makes sense for anarchists to use the same models of organizing as quakers because again it comes from that same place where everybody is equal has an equal say So the sort of traditions, I think, arise naturally out of that revolutionary space, you know. So um, the consensus, how Quakers do consensus has been very influential in the anarchist movement. If you Mm -hmm. look at uh, Movement for a New Society was run by Quakers back, I think it was in the 70s. They wrote, there's an awesome little book called Oppose and Propose. That's all about the Movement for a New Society, which was created these like massive networks of mutual, mutual aid networks. And was very successful. It was a really interesting movement, um, and that was it was formed by Quakers, and then anarchists took a lot of those same traditions and the same models from that movement, um, and that still affects how we do stuff today. I know in my own activist history, um, Quakers have been at every sort of step in my own becoming. Whether it was in Kansas being involved with Food Not Bombs in the cooperative movement there. Um, There was a strong Quaker presence also in Oklahoma City where I participated in movements against the death penalty. The Quakers were the ones organizing against it. And if you look at our nation's founding, Quakers faced so much persecution for their opposition towards the genocide of the Native Americans and their pacifist stance. Um, So how does, how has religion become oftentimes seen as a negative element and a negative force or as something that does not belong within leftist circles because that can be a stereotype that is actually very real. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And there's good reason for that. 
because religion has also been an incredibly oppressive power um, throughout history. Um, and when sort of the original anarchist anarchism as instead of anarchic organizing anarchism specifically as like a body of political theory back in the 1800s um that that's where a lot of this like very intensive anti-religion stuff came from and it's connected to the enlightenment and the idea of like the scientific revolution and like being a part of that movement you know and seeing at that moment huge amounts of corruption and oppression by the you know catholic church and i mean and just um trying to separate themselves politically from all structures of oppression, which included the government and include includes religion. Um, I do think that, unfortunately, the baby got thrown out with the bathwater, though, because instead of seeing spirituality as another source of power that has also been co-opted by power and capitalism, its spirituality is seen as inseparable from religion, therefore you have to reject spirituality along with religion to reject the hierarchical power structures of Mm -hmm. religious institutions. I know that ourselves in our household operate from, I guess, the great socialist Jewish tradition um, (laughs) that was prominent in Europe and in North America over the past several hundred years. And it does feel like something that can't really be be mentioned. So I really like how in your podcast you talk about it a whole lot. And I think what they're really getting at is religious oppression. And so, so what are some ways in which we can start to open up our communities? How have you and your community, I guess, opened up this can of worms and made it not a taboo subject and something that people feel comfortable talking about and organizing around? Well, I also, I think that being open to religion and spirituality is a very important part of doing anti-racist work because a lot of communities of color are very religious such so like when point. we so when the anarchist movement, which is often mostly white or heavily light, heavily white, um, rejects religion as a whole or is like very, very antagonistic and hostile towards Christians and Christianity, you're throwing out and devaluing something that's very important to a lot of the people that we're supposedly trying to help and serve. Right. Not to mention um, seeing it only through the eyes of colonial subjects and colonial spirituality and religion Mm -hmm. yeah i mean the mystic the sort of mystic tradition is often really connected to indigenous traditions as well so it's like if you're if you're pulling down spirituality in general you're devaluing the realities of the importance of spiritual practice in indigenous communities as well yeah totally so um we do have to open that up and i think there actually is a movement to open that up the reception the reception i've gotten from my podcast has been really overwhelmingly positive I think the sort of like super hardcore anti-religious sentiment from the anarchist movement is maybe possibly starting to die out a little bit, that it might be a little bit more old school. Mm-hmm. So because I haven't really run into that so much. I've run into it only from people who are older than from people that I'm working with more directly in our age group. I know that my own history with that sort of thing um, comes from when I was like 16 and I was rebelling against my very Catholic very conservative family. And I discovered um, this sort of militant atheism. Mm-hmm. And it has taken me, you know, it, it takes a while to to sort of see how glaringly obvious some of the Islamophobia is in that work. And, you know, it's all over that sort of, you know, religion is the cause of all wars. Yeah. I mean, when 
your exposure to Christianity is white evangelical, that well, it's pretty much a horrible blight on society. White evangelical, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like that's where um, huge amounts of our fascist organizing is happening in white evangelical um, traditions, and like that. I mean, it's incredibly toxic. It's incredibly homophobic and transphobic and Islamophobic as it is as it is expressed right now in our culture in our society. So the fact that people see that and equate that with religion, it's like I'm 100% fair. Especially people who are who have been treated very very badly by religious households. Like yeah. I totally understand. I definitely have um, a few friends who were very very uncomfortable with my uh, sort of conversion and you know finding religion and finding christianity specifically and i totally understand that because they were treated just horrifically by christian family so like um it's it's unfortunate but that's definitely real you know and respecting that um that kind of true pain and trauma that's associated with religion when in our movement you know, that needs to be addressed too. I think that really connects well to something that you also speak about on your podcast, which is um, starting to talk about and deal with as communities trauma and um, developing a nurturing culture and also addressing a lot of the traumas that we all have from a very traumatizing society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our society is incredibly traumatizing. It's built on pain. At, you know, that's how you get power to the top is you you take it, you know, and um, if in their in our current hierarchical, increasingly fascistic society, pain and trauma are required to uphold that system. So everybody is traumatized, especially the more the more oppressive identities you have. It's just like an, an increasing amount of trauma. So like in this movement, we need to be conscious and actively working towards a culture that addresses and respects and understands trauma so that when we're organizing together we can have an open heart and mind in realizing that people are coming from often a very emotional difficult place especially when we're working in stressful conditions um you know like we're already like being state facing state oppression the way we are yeah. facing facing physical violence and assault the way that we are, that's already incredibly stressful. And add on to that sort of like past trauma and even in current trauma, like if we're going to get anywhere, then we have to be working act very actively working and even centering trauma support and like emotional support within our communities. And that's something that has um, at times in my life. And I feel even like still to this day, I struggle with some organizing that kind of operates from this sort of like businessy model, like very, very um, structured, you know, not a lot of space to talk about things like emotion and trauma and not a lot of space to be to be vulnerable and to, and to break down. Um, so how has all this sort of culminated in some of your work with um, NAC? You were telling me about NAC. Mm -hmm. So NAC is NAC for the Neighborhood Anarchist Collective. It's a collective that I've been a part of organizing and putting together in Eugene, um, we started working on the structure for it back in April, and we just launched our first like public meeting at the beginning of September. Um, it's been an incredibly wonderful project. We've we have worked very hard to center a nurturing model in how we organize. Um, so, for instance, our agenda structure is different because of this focus on nurturing and understanding emotional the emotional space of where people are at. So like every meeting 
we start with check-ins, which are emotional check-ins. We go around the court, we go around and have everybody just if they do or if they don't want to um, mm -hmm. express where they're at emotionally in that moment, sort of like what they how their day was or how their weekend was and give people just a little moment to like connect and to so then and give context so that when we move yeah. into the meeting, we understand like, oh, they just had a big fight with their significant yeah. other. Like if they're being kind of tense and rude, like, well, maybe we can understand where they're coming from on that space. You know what I mean? So we do check ins. That's for, so important. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's super helpful. You know what I mean? Because it does happen. It does happen where it's like they're being like really tight, like they're really intense with me right now. And it's like, but I have that context of understanding that they're it really and like, you know, it doesn't make it OK to like, but it does make it easier it to compassion yeah it does make it easier to understand so that the when when you you can say like um we have a we have a another a norm where it's like you can say like um I'm feeling like you're being really intense with me right now I kind of am feeling like I'm being attacked a little bit and like leave room for that and sort of be like so that it can be addressed mm -hmm. and uh, instead of having stuff just build yeah. You know what I mean? And like stuff just like under the surface tensions that can like really end up ripping stuff apart. So then that's what we did at the beginning. And then at the end of the meeting, we do a process review, which is when we have open and honest. We can have an open and honest space for people to talk about problems that happened within that meeting. And sometimes that's the time where it's like you didn't want to mention it at the time. But it's like, actually, I felt like I didn't get heard at this moment. I felt like the stack got wow. disrupted and that you weren't centering, that you like you were centering yourself or whatever. So like we have a process moment where it's like everyone needs to like be open and listen to that criticism, you know. And then the last thing we always always end with is appreciations. I love where that. we go around and we say, you know, you did a great job facilitating. Thank you so much. Or like thank you for being here, even though you're having a hard day. Or like you did a really great job with that. I appreciate being here in this group. So that we always leave on a positive note, you know. I love that. I feel like a lot of that model, um, I've seen a few of those things in my own organizing history, and I feel like part of it comes from groups and collectives that really center organizing around nurturing and inclusion of women and marginalized people's voices, um, because I feel like so much of um, you know, I think many of our listeners might have been in like a student club at some time that operated super or was trying to operate like a business right they just have this like i've also worked at jobs where they just you know go bam 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 topic 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 and then you leave and there's no time to build that trust and that connection to really mm -hmm. kind of almost build like a family type setting mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's not just you know nice it's also very practical because having it be a positive experience means people want to come back. Yeah. It means like, you know, we did five months of just structural stuff, which is not necessarily the funnest stuff, yeah. but because we always ended up on a positive note, we always felt like we had a community. Then we just wanted to be there. Like we want to be there. It, it lifts your spirits. It keeps you going. So and it's very, it's not just like a, like an extra fun like oh that's nice it feels better it's like no it's actually legitimately required for this work to be effective and sustainable it's functional yeah it's functional mm -hmm. so um what else so so what all does NAC do um in your community so yeah so NAC is structured to be uh um help 
help people form affinity groups and give support and structure to projects that people want to feel empowered to do in their community. So, oh, I should have brought you one. For instance, the project that just got finished was a resource guide. It's just a single piece of eight by 11 and a half paper, but it's folded up like folded um, hot dog and then in thirds and the way it's designed, it's really cute. And what, what, what that group, what that affinity group decided they wanted to do was just make a poor people's guide to the Eugene Springfield area. So they just, they just gathered all the information on where are, where can you, where are the food services, where are the free mental health services, women's services, um, you know, like housing, shelters, whatever, and put it, just conglomerated it in a really easy to reference small little single page because that information is out there and there are other groups that do, you know, have lists of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But this is something that is super easy to just grab one and have everything in a single place. And like, that's a simple thing, but it's like really meaningful to a lot of people and it's easy to distribute, you know? So it's like, that was a, that was a project somebody wanted to do and people just like had the structure to do it because we have open, we have meetings where everyone can gather and then like talk about what the projects they want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, then we have this structure where it says like we have set up communication lines and tools. We have we actually have a nurturing committee so that if there are disagreements, you can go to the nurturing committee for mediation. Um, we have a logistics team. So it's like, oh, we are going to need uh, banner supplies. We're going to need printing like we're going to need transportation whatever you can go to the logistics team and say these are the things we need and like they'll help you set that up um you know so we have a facilitation team so it's like if you need to learn how to facilitate a meeting you can go to them and we have um communications so we have um social media presence we have um there's a lot of things that you can get access to as a group that you can't get access to as an individual Mm. for instance if you're like asking for a speaker to come down for something or whatever, you're more likely to get a response if it's from an established group or organization rather than just a random individual. So it's like somebody's like, I want Alexander Reed Ross to come into town. And it's like, well, that'd be awesome if I just sent an email. That's not going to matter. It's like, oh, well, you come to us. And the organization, Neighborhood Anarchist Collective, has more clout to like ask for that kind of thing and to like ask for resources and that sort of stuff. So that's that's what we do. That's awesome. Um, I would love, so part of why I really wanted to put this together is to start, um, expanding our concept of local to be outside of our small 55,000 person town of Corvallis that is Mm -hmm. much often overlooked. You know, I remember the first time I moved up here, there was hardly any signs for Corvallis and I'm like, where am I actually going? (laughs) I think part of it is we're 10 miles from I-5, you know, so we're not even a gas station town. We're not even like come stop here and have a bite to eat while you drive to Portland town. Right. Um, It's off the beaten path for bands and for groups. And I feel like they're because of the university cultures of OSU and U of O, which tend to be um, have nationalistic undertones of sort of unfettered loyalty and devotion to a school in this sort of like rivalry that has no basis. Um, that solidarity between organizations and communities in the towns has not really developed to the degree that mm-hmm. it might be expected to. Yeah, I think um, coalition building and creating these networks between different areas is super important. Um, mm-hmm. One of the problems, though, 
right now is that even local networks are not well developed. Yes. Right. So it's hard to network outside of your local area when you haven't even created strong networks within your local area. Yeah. You know, so. um, However, getting different outside perspectives is also really important. Like we can be learning a lot from each other. I think so, too. You know what I mean? So it's like if. And it can help build networks because you never you never know. Like maybe one of you has a connection with somebody in Eugene. Mm-hmm. You're like, and it's like, oh, well, we talked to you. And now you're like, oh, you should go figure out who this person is. And then we've created another network connection. You know what I mean? So it's like it's um, which has happened to me a lot, actually, recently when one person that like, it's actually kind of a tight community, even nationally. Yeah. You know, like I meet one person and it turns out that they know this person and then actually they have already worked with this person. And so it's like there are networks and there are like even national networks, which has been very exciting for me to get tied into. There's a lot of amazing organizing going around, going mm-hmm. around in the country. So it's like how do we why isn't that happening as much on this like local scale as yeah. it needs to? And I know here in the mid Valley. Um, I don't know if y'all use that term. We're in the middle Willamette Valley up here is what we say. You know, there's like <laughs> Albany here and, and Corvallis over here. Like a lot of healthcare services are in Eugene. So mm. I know folks that drive there um, almost every week. Wow. Yeah. Uh, who do that, you know, 50 to a minute to an hour drive uh, there for even just like medical stuff or to see partners because um, I'll just say the dating pool is very small in Corvallis. (laughs) So, you know, people date there and, or they go to shows there. I've gone to shows there, but I haven't gotten to develop the sort of thing where I know anyone really in Eugene. And I feel like that's part of that to where if folks come up here for an event for solidarity or for um, like if a labor union is striking in Lane County yeah. or if a labor union striking here in Benton County, mm-hmm. that we should be able to have that infrastructure that we develop where we can house and situate and take care and nurture people. So it doesn't feel like, um, you know, that we have folks from marginalized communities here drive down there and feel right. isolated and back and, and vice versa. I think that's, one of the important parts about creating these collectives, and we can want as many collectives as we can, is then you can have a group to contact who yeah. can contact their everybody there and like get the word out in a much more efficient way to everybody, you know what I mean? Instead of I trying to like these individual connections, like thinking on a more of like community scale, right? So like that's one of the things we're trying to do with NAC is then like if you have something you can come and give it to the Neighborhood Anarchist Collective and we can put it on our social media. Like we have more of a platform or me, you know, like um, I don't friendly anarchism doesn't the podcast doesn't do any sort of current events or anything. But like I have a Facebook page that I'm happy to like stand in solidarity and do like actions that you're having here. Like definitely contact me with stuff like that. And um, I can put that on my page. And then so like having creating platforms for ourselves, creating like um, groups that can be more easily like contacted and worked together you know so we just have to keep building up that infrastructure you know I think that that kind of stands um what you said is is a powerful statement about how we live um community-based activism and anarchism in our daily lives as not thinking as individuals right and thinking as a community and placing ourselves within collectives and within community in order to operate and do our activism I feel like w- national politics are stuck in that individualist mindset where it is thought that if as an individual you go to a state sanctioned and approved legally valid protest or march 
that you as an individual have completed an action right. of solidarity. And and I'm not discounting that, but I think that that is a lot of the neoliberal um, mindset that we're stuck with, too, in this era of Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's actually been hard for me sometimes because I work as an individual my project is just is me as an individual going out there, you know, sort of like making yeah. sure that's part of the spiritual practice is the c- continuously re, re, re um, reminding myself and going back to that place of humility of like being humble and saying like, we are all equal. Everybody has something important to say, you know what I mean? So it's like for us to continue to do that, you know, and that, and that everybody does, you know, it's part of like how we open up and create community is staying in that truly like equal minded, community minded anarchist mindset that we, every person has something valuable for us. You know what I mean? I love that. And it sounds like uh, co-host person X has some questions and wants to hop in. So uh, welcome, truly. Trying to think about building local collectives like you're talking about. And you earlier you referenced Oppose and Propose which was written by Andrew Cornell, who, by the way, was a former Corvallis resident. Oh, no way. You cool. didn't know that? I didn't. Um, good guy. Uh, that book has a lot of valuable lessons about how to build prefigurative collectives and that are ones informed by care ethics and nurturing practices. But at the same time, there was a lot of limitations to the Movement for a New Society style of organizing. Um, for instance, burnout happened very uh, often mm-hmm. in those collectives and they weren't able to in the long run kind of sustain that energy. So I'm wondering, like considering those limitations, how do you think today we might better build these local collectives? And what are things that we should consider in order to make stronger networks? I think we need to focus very heavily on not becoming insular. I think that one of the problems is feeling like, well, we're the ones doing it. We're no, we know all the things, how to do stuff, which means that we end up trying to take on too much. You know what I mean? So if we are building community, if you're bringing more people into the movement, creating an open culture, then you have more hands. You have more people to do work, and you don't have to try. We don't have to think that we're the only ones who can do this, you know, that we're the only ones who know how to do it, and therefore we have to do everything. Like, no, we don't. Like, if you need to help, maybe that means you need to spend more time in your collective focusing on training. You know, which is fine because then you train people and then they can do stuff. It's also what ends up happening, though, it's really hard because trying to get people to embrace their own power and like be empowered is really difficult. And like we still live in a society where people lean heavily on leaders. So something that happens as like active organizers is even if I'm trying to train new people or whatever, there's a tendency to just end up leaning on people who like seem like leaders in the movement too heavily. And like so we especially need to work really hard on distributing that power and like not not like enjoying that leadership role and those powerful roles that we know everything you know ideally if we're given or fall into a place of leadership we should try as much to distribute that power out and kind of deconstruct that position that we're in yeah totally um and sometimes it leaves voids and sometimes it's sad. It's like somebody wants to take on a project. Um, sometimes it can be hard as an organizer, like this is an important project and they're not doing it. But empowering leaders sometimes means letting people fail, you yeah. know, and letting people see like you didn't do it. So it didn't happen. You know what I mean? Like, which can be hard when it's like, I really want this project to happen. 
Are there any like best practices or things that you've experienced in your organizing that help mitigate against uh, insularity and burnout and like that kind of leaning on leadership? Um, friendliness. <laughs> yeah, for real. Just like being um, open and not jerks. Like I think the best security culture and the best organizing praxis is just being loving, not jerks. like legitimately there are a lot of jerks in the movement there are a lot of jerks in society there's a lot of uh brochialism brochialist you know it's just like um you know a lot of i think a very masculine culture of no emotion or little emotion or not valuing the effective yeah uh, manarchy man oh my god i love that term manarchism manarchism and well yeah i mean and that also coincides with bad communication yeah which is awful if you're trying to build coalitions if you're trying to work with people who are trying to like reach you have to be able to communicate and so like sort of like a non-communicative you know in our culture masculinity often means very non-communicative and like that is a huge, huge problem. Mm-hmm. So like uh, I think one of the main problems we have to be solving is these communication lines. And um, so, yeah. Um, I know that earlier we had talked about um, kind of coming from different places and then, you know, kind of realizing sort of the, the, the nuances in different communities and organizing. And um, I think how important it is for femme folk and women um, to be I guess, valued and, and as, as basic as it sounds, valued and respected in organizing and in communities. And sometimes there is brochialism and manarchism and it shows up in ways that are kind of hard to tease out and hindsight's yeah. almost always twenty twenty on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely had problems <laughs> as a femme. Um, yeah. We like to think that we're immune as people who work against oppression but the reality is, is that we all did grow up in a, in a severely authoritarian patriarchal society and we are not immune. And um, even men with the best intentions can really mess up. And like we have to be able to say like, yeah, you're right, I messed up. And like that doesn't necessarily happen enough. But it's also, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty personal. I just like, <laughs> like at this moment, I'm having a hard time with that on some personal yeah, levels. So yeah. it's like. I know it's it's really hard. I feel like it, it goes back to allowing for nurturing and emotion and um, checking in, checking on process mm-hmm. and all those things to be part of organizing. Um, you know, I, I'm, I think as we embrace more on the ground, um, I have, I have feelings that are mixed about the term militant, but you know, very, very impassioned activism that we also do that hard work to also make sure that we make sure ourselves and our community are really taken care of. Yeah. I mean, dismantling patriarchy means dismantling it within yourself. Like we all have to, if we're going to be working in any kind of social justice, we have to be constantly, constantly checking with our own racist and like, especially um, as, as Oregon is such a white dominant place. I mean, already the anarchism scene can be, can be oftentimes very white. In my experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's not white everywhere, but like no. in general, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, I think, because a lot of the work that people do um, or like Antifa movements and the front lines and that sort of stuff is like we sh- white people should be putting their bodies on the line. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's so having having white people specifically 
taking the reins, not taking the reins, but like being available for like that kind of work, I don't think is necessarily a bad idea as long as we are also continuously addressing the fact that we are white, you know, and like making sure that communities of color are being heard and respected in their wishes. You know what I mean? Because sometimes there can be a tendency, a uh, patronizing or patriarchal tendency to say, well, this is what you need. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm going to step in as a savior. And I know at times, uh, I know, especially as someone who works within higher education, it's pervasive in higher education to try to approach that through tokenizing approaches. Yes, absolutely. And it's not enough. And it almost does a great disservice to say, oh, well, our collective or our group does not have um this sort of voice and so we want this sort of person who fits this identity to be able to speak about that identity and you know often oftentimes people's rallying and their their biggest passion isn't around their identity and when that's you know that can be that can be Mm -hmm. toxic that happens in higher education a lot yeah totally um i was speaking earlier about the london anarchist book fair which was quite an interesting situation and we want to talk about what happened there i mean go for it yeah so what happened at the london anarchist book fair is there were um a couple turfs who which trans exclusionary radical feminists um which is incredibly toxic and incredibly transphobic came to the london anarchist book fair with um propaganda with anti-trans propaganda and people were rightfully upset about it however it ended up being in like a way over the top re- reaction with like them possibly getting assaulted by like 30 people and like the fire alarm got pulled and like th- it put other people at risk. You know what I mean? So it's like what happened is like people with children and disabilities were terrified. And like, um, so like that's one of those moments where it's like you, they sent the people who were rightfully upset, how you know, about the turfy stuff ended up centering their one issue over the safety of everybody else and so like that's one of those situations where it's like are we centering an issue you know what I mean and I I feel like I got I kind of got off track about what you were talking about about like no I think that's that's a great point about how I lost my train of thought too oh oh I guess where I was going is that one of the things that the um the book fair collective also got attacked from on because of that was that they weren't they didn't have any trans speakers or presenters at the workshop at the, mm-hmm. at the book fair and their response was like just because they weren't speaking about trans issues yeah. doesn't mean there weren't trans presenters you know and it's like yeah. oh you know like that's a really interesting point you know and had just been assumed by the people who were trying to stand up for trans rights in a way that actually didn't you know yeah yeah and it's so i guess what what my what my thought was when you were talking is that in a way in an effort to seem anti-authoritarian and anti-oppressive the sort of at times, you know, it, we can end up mirroring some of those tendencies in our own movements because um, it's hard to place a good ism on it, but it becomes so pervasive in our culture, this individualistic, authoritarian, sort of almost militant and oftentimes violent response to things. And there's times where violence, you know, punching Richard Spencer in the face, I think, is <laughs> is always a good thing. You know, people who adv- a- outwardly advocate and organize around genocide, right? Um but there's times where there are a multitude of approaches and especially at a book fair where there's children and folks with disabilities and many communities, um, you know, I feel like there's ways to handle that. Yeah, better. I mean, the, that purity culture, I mean, the problem being that I I read this statement from the London Anarchist Book Fair and I think it was problematic. Like, I think they didn't 
really address everything they needed to address. However, the anarchist movement and the radical movement's response to them was so intensively hostile and, um, you know, that there's no longer going to be a London Anarchist Book Fair. Mm -hmm. The Book Fair Collective gave up. And it's like, that is a big loss to the movement. That is a big loss to the movement that was something, two people handing out literature that shouldn't have been there ended up with us no longer having a London Anarchist Book Fair, which was like a staple, like organizing place. You know what I mean? So it's like, how did that happen? Like what happened in our movement to get to a space where that is the response you know what I mean? Where that is the outcome of what was um, trying to address an issue of bigotry, right? Yeah. Something kind of similar and also like so many sides and nuance and it's hard to grapple with is um, there was the Chicago Dyke March, which happened a while ago. Um, and people were flying pride flags that had um, the Star of David on them and they were kicked out. And so... there was a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment going Mm. around that people could not have a star of David um, and that just the presence of people who were, who were Jewish and that, you know, have that identity are necessarily are, are like immutably tied to Palestinian struggles for equality and liberation as if the two can't coexist. And so I believe that March got canceled as well Mm -hmm. due to, um, later even on their their twitter feed they started spouting some of that stuff so i know within queer organizing there is you know a lot of intersectional issues that need to be addressed to make sure it does not replicate some of these bigger societal structures yeah one of the problems is if we are trying to build community and reach out to the community at large and create a mass movement which to have an effective mass movement you need basically everybody right but people are problematic You know what I mean? Like there are lots of problematic issues with lots of different communities that we are going to need to work with if we're going to have any success. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do you manage the fact that you're dealing with oppressive, problematic behaviors and you don't want to bring that like that what they're doing and that's into what needs to be safe spaces for people Mm -hmm. as well. You know what I mean? So um, I studied the Serbian revolution, which um, that was taking down. Slobodan Milosevic. It was uh, done by a group called Otpor. If mm-hmm. you know the the Revolutionary Fist, that's like a pretty common um, symbol. It came from Otpor. And how they did it was they focused entirely on the work, on praxis. It said, like, if you want to do this project, if you want to do this work, we don't care who you are. So then in that way, um, they were able to create coalitions with people that probably would not have worked together beforehand and if people say like well that's problematic to have like racist people in a space with people of color it's like that can be really hard um and i don't know how to address that i'm not a person of color i don't know what that feels like but um i do know that one of the best ways to get people to stop being racist or transphobic or whatever is just exposure yeah and it's and so it's like if there are people of oppressive oppressed identities that want to take on the role of being the exposure this is a really complicated issue you know like i know that it's 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 certainly valid you know what i mean so it's like if we we need community we're going to be working with people problem behaviors the best way to solve problematic behaviors is have them in community you know what i mean so it's like it seems like it comes back around again to figuring out how we can integrate people 
of all kinds and all like stances and all things into the movement in a way that is safe for everybody. You know, we had, um, oh, sorry to jump in. We had an interview with Kevin Van Meter a few weeks ago, and he talked about sort of backwards thinking, organizing, thinking about how we became radicalized, thinking about mm. how we got into the movement, how we got into the community, how we got into the collective or mm-hmm. the union and then figuring out how to replicate some of those steps for other people. Oh, and it often, you know, and it often never happens that someone knocks on your door and says, Hey, join our union. And then you're like, Oh, golly gee. Yes. <laughs> or that you're, or someone knocks on your door and they're like, Oh, Hey, have you heard of, um, anarchism? Have you read Emma Goldman? Read it right now. You know, please come to our meeting. But it happens through, I would say almost a thousand pleasant conversations Mm. and a thousand aha moments Mm. over the course of years, you know, where um, sometimes I would like to think I've always been like this. And then I think when I was 18, I had a senior picture with a hammer and sickle on it and it was great, (laughs) but I was also harboring a lot of um, really toxic racism and Islamophobia from my rural Kansas community that was pretty unchecked and Mm -hmm. that showed up in a lot of the things I wrote back then. Right. And so um, it didn't happen in a day. And if I wasn't allowed to go to the parties and to see people and be a part of the organizations and be wrong, I would not be here today in front of this microphone spouting some of these words. Mm -hmm. So I think this comes back again to how important trauma relief and nurturing culture is because a lot, I think this, this hostility, um, which can be really deserved because people have been traumatized by bigots and traumatized by these oppressive people, yes. right? But so then if we are continuing to focus heavily on nurturing, then maybe we, we can help mitigate the pain that oppressed people have felt and help mitigate that so we can sort of like help that response be not so hostile that people get driven out of the movement, but not by saying like, you need to stop being hostile. It was like, but like, we need to figure out how to address the pain that you're feeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like coming from it, always leading with love, like coming from a place of like, you're being incredibly hostile and difficult. Something painful is, this is coming from a painful place. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's for within our own movement. And then also, you know, um, as far as it talk about like bringing, bringing people, into the movement who are also have pain and um so yeah so when you're talking about oppor in a similar vein uh what you were saying was really interesting to me about bringing multiple groups of people into the fold uh particularly groups of folks that don't often work together or could even seem to be problematic uh relationships with one another like racist with people of color it reminded me of um a quote from martin luther king jr and some of his organizing practices were, just to paraphrase them, I can't remember exactly, he said that what your objective really is is to manufacture crises that bring different groups of people together to create what he called creative tensions. And one example I think was uh, even more modern is environmental movements with labor movements where labor sometimes like advocates for pipelines in order to create jobs because Mm -hmm. that's like what they see as their ad hoc issue. And obviously that's inimical to, you know, the environmental movements, but uh, there have been moments where those tensions are brought together and it actually puts people in a dialogue with each other. And then they can work out these kind of creative tensions as Martin Luther King was talking about. So I'm just kind of thinking about this again and what you're saying with bringing people that have experienced trauma into the fold. Like what are some of the ways that we can 
for lack of a better term, manufacture crises that create creative tensions? I would say that we need to let that model go, actually. Creating crises is we, we need fewer crises <laughs> in the world. And like if you're talking about, for instance, um, like the uh, labor versus environmentalism, for instance, some of the best organizing happened instead like um, by Judy Berry mm. back in the 90s. Her model was of a nurturing, bring people together model as opposed to the creating crises model that was being used by the more like radical militant group before that, the spiking trees mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So like because what Judy Berry did is she reached out to the timber community who were working actively against the, the environmental movement and saying, look, the timber industry is treating you the same way that they're treating the trees, that you're expendable, that you can be used up and thrown out. And like we can see this in how many injuries you have, how they like don't give you support for your health care after you've been badly injured, how like they're not paying you well enough, how you're putting yourself at risk and like how you're living in these poverty conditions at the same time as they say that, you know, you all these things and you're, they're pitting you against a community and they're making you chop down these like beautiful areas like we're on the same page. So the idea instead of instead of creating crises, you create compassion and empathy between each other, understanding that what's good for us is good for them is good for you as we can work together to make something better. So like, um, I would say, you know, I mean, nonviolence has nonviolent movements and like protest movements have developed a lot since the sixties. Like there has been a, a lot of change and work done and we are in, we have to always remember to look at our current context and the current, um, developments in how protest movements work um, instead of trying to like rely on older models I think like for instance um, going back to sort of like the Antifa thing is like the idea back in the 60s was people of color needed to get like beaten and arrested to make a visual showing giving them the moral authority and like we're saying now it's like you don't lose moral authority if you defend yourself I mean, like you shouldn't have to like we shouldn't be saying, oh, to fix the problem, you all need to get like brutal, brutalized in order to like be nonviolent. Go to jail for 60 years by protesting Trump's inauguration. Right. It's like you're allowed to defend yourself and still maintain moral authority. And like that is something that is not incongruous with an older protesting, nonviolent protesting model. And that's something that's like a great source of tension right now. Um, but that's one of the examples of saying, like, we have progressed upon the past the idea that um, marginalized communities need to put themselves at risk in order for a nonviolent movement to function properly. Um, we are about winding down on time. So I just have a few fun questions. Sure. Um, what are some of your favorite uh, podcasts to listen to? Um, I listen to On Being with Krista Tippett. I really like that show. Um, it's so funny because, like, I don't listen to a lot of anarchist podcasts because, like, when I'm chilling, I want chill Yeah, stuff. Yeah, I it's listen- like get a lot of this in <laughs> like, the day-to-day. Yeah, I get a lot. Like, I, well, I spend tons of time reading anarchist literature and, like, keeping up with the news and stuff, and, like, that can be... So I, I actually don't... It's so funny. So, like, podcasts... And I often just, like, fall asleep to podcasts. So it's like, if that's actually an interesting podcast I want to hear, like, I'm probably not going to hear it. So, like, I listen to that. I actually listen to... Um, it's, so I read anarchist stuff all the time, but then I like listen to spiritual stuff. So I, I listen to homebrewed Christianity 
and I listen to um, Tim Keller, even though he's problematic, but a lot of his sermons are really, really good. And then I listen to um, homilies. They're just like little short things by Richard Rohr. Um, and then there's some like Quaker, there's like a Quaker speak podcast. And so, yeah. That's all sound <laughs> <Actually>. great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about music? What music have you been uh, listening to? If you're into music, what, you know, what's, what's getting a lot of play right now? I think 2017 <laughs> off, on the record formally, Andrea thinks 2017 has been one of the best years for music. Um, what do you in, listen in to? years? Oh my gosh. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard just released their fourth album of the year. Um, K-pop has been really good. Um, the bands twice and, uh, G friend and Blackpink have been releasing a lot of really good stuff. There's been a lot of good Vocaloid coming out by Hayao GP. Um, yeah. OCs has a new album out. Damaged bug had a new album out. Kate LeBon and Tim Presley had a collab that was really good. Um, yeah. 2017 has just been killer for music and this is just scratching the surface gorillas had a new album that was also super stellar that i don't think got enough appreciation so <laughs> this is really embarrassing <laughs> but i listen to mostly top 40 there's nothing like, wrong with that there's nothing no, wrong with that i think that's again like i i have i have very varied tastes actually yeah, like there's a lot i, of, I listen to 40. i listen to all sorts of stuff yeah you know um um, I've been listening to like older albums. I've been listening to Juana Molina recently and, um, um, listening to, um, but in, in generally speaking, maybe some jazz now and then if I'm like needing to chill, but like generally speaking, I've been listening to just sort of like crappy beat dance music. Cause that it gets me moving. So like, it'll help me like yeah. get up and like move around. I wouldn't around. call it crappy. I would say all music has a time and a place. I also love yeah, Carly Rae Jepsen who has a lot of top 40 hits. Yeah. I really like right now I'm on repeat. I'm listening to slow hands by like mm. Neil Horan. Ooh, I have to check it out. Yeah. Don't be embarrassed about the top. But this morning I was listening to the Eagles. For some reason I got all these Eagles songs stuck in my head and the, the Warriors. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Well, they had the, in the city was the Warriors Eagle song. And I just had it in my mind when I woke up this morning listening to it. So, <laughs> I think that's another change. That's another difference in the anarchist movement now versus then it was super, super closely tied to the punk movement. And so yeah. it'd be like come into an anarchist space and be like, I really, really like... And that was a lot of my first introdu introduction to anarchism. I remember Against Me's 2001 Crime EP mm -hmm. um, was one of my first anarcho-punk albums. And it just set me off on a huge, um, huge portion of my life was in punk. And then an embarrassing part of my life was really into ska for a few <laughs> years. I, I played trumpet and then I was in a little That's ska awesome. band. Um, no, I actually like, I definitely like um, Riot Girl got me through my teen years for sure. Yeah, I listened to a lot of Hole and I don't want to hear anybody say anything crappy about Courtney Love right now. I'm just going to say it right yeah, up. I know Courtney awesome. Love is great. And like the coat, hey, there's so much good femme punk coming out. Like even this year, like Coat Hangers has new stuff that's mm -hmm. really good. And La Luz is also really killer. Um, yeah, gosh, I could just go on for days. That but was, That was a fun question. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to close up on? We're getting close to an hour, which is a good, is a good stop. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to like meet other people in the other anarchists and people in the movement, you know, like there's so many of us and we're so it's, I mean, there's not very many of us, but there also is more of us than I think 
we realize because we're not connecting well. So like yeah. to being in, invited up here to talk to you and like meet you and like there's so many different kinds of anarchists, you know, if we can be like open and loving about all the different people that are being interested in the anarchist movement right now and um, getting out of like a clicky um, cultural scene and kind of yeah. thing. And like, I, so this is just wonderful. And I hope that we keep keep up these connections and like get get Corvallis involved in sort of the I-5 <laughs> corridor yes. scene, you know, yeah. so like um, I, I want to wish you wish you good luck with that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was so excited when you said you would do it. I like practically like yelped in front of my computer <laughs> and I, I messaged person X and I was like, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, this, is def- that. <laughs> this is definitely a highlight of my week. Well, You're thank you so much for having a conversation with us and um, for folks on Friendly Anarchism, who are looking for us, we are Labor Wave Revolution Radio, and we will be on iTunes, we hope, shortly crossing our fingers. And for folks listening to our podcast, um, you just heard a good conversation with Friendly Anarchism, and you can find Friendly Anarchism on Facebook and on iTunes. We're also on Facebook, but we're super small. It's like 40 likes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thank you so much again. All right, thank you.